This episode of The Dairy Show is sponsored by Vitelli. Vitelli is a precision livestock company reshaping how cattle producers worldwide optimize their herds. Through Vitelli's integrated technology platform, generations of genetic gains can be made in just a few years. This allows producers to sustainably deliver more protein with fewer inputs, helping to ensure meat and milk are viable competitive food choices for future generations. From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting-edge technology, and the colored shavings. Welcome back to The Dairy Show, everyone. I am your host, Katie Schmidt. And joining us this week, we have Kevin Zimba of ZBW Genetics in Durhamville, New York. So welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Katie. Now, the first thing we like to do with guests, and if you listen to the show before you know this, is we have them introduce themselves. So, Kevin, what is your connection to air culture and dairy? Yeah, so, uh, you know, pretty diverse background, I guess you would say. Um, so I work for ST Genetics currently, have been for the last four years. Primary role is uh, the Eastern U.S. sales manager, and then um, also work with our genetic development team on sire selection and, and the genetic direction of uh, the, the industry that we serve. You know, additionally, my wife and son, Barb and Mason, we have uh, our own group of uh, what we hope are elite genetics that we work with. You know, we have uh, Holstein's jerseys, a few Swiss, and do a lot with in vitro fertilization, embryo collection, recips, uh, showing, etc. Historically, I've uh, worked in the AI industry for the last uh, 18 to 20 years and um, had my master's in genetics from Cornell and that gives me the opportunity to serve actually as the uh, coach for the Cornell University dairy judging team as well. So a lot of different things going on, but it keeps it exciting and fun. For sure. And our, our listeners who keep asking for genetics on this podcast, I'm excited that we have you as a guest, Kevin, so we can finally like talk about this. But first, let's cover a few more things about the farm. Uh, so it's an elite herd. How many animals are we talking? Is it heifers, cows? What's, what's happening at, at the farm? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we're really a little bit more of a smaller scale operation, focusing on, on just, you know, maximizing genetic potential. So we probably are, we don't physically milk any cows. Uh, we have a partner, Brian Oster and his wife, Cassie Chittenden, uh, that run uh, Retso Holsteins, which is also a boarding operation. So we have the uh, privilege of having our milk cows at their facility. Uh, we probably have about 15 to 20 milk cows, and then we have about 40-ish heifers. And then at any given time, we probably have 60, 60 65 pregnancies, which um, makes it a very interesting dynamic. We focus a lot on maybe the high type side, um, but we do uh, have some very unique goals with genetics uh, from a diversity standpoint. Um, we try to have a few donors that we're focusing on with genomics in regards to TPI or net merit. 
we have had a lot of success with red and polled. And um, those niche markets allows a, allow us to have kind of a diverse portfolio um, to serve, you know, multiple markets. So that makes it kind of uh, exciting to, you know, see if we can make genetic progress in each of these uh, different categories, as well as the jerseys. Uh, we do quite a bit with the, with the jerseys. That's, that's my son Mason's uh, primary program, and sometimes he allows us to uh, help him with decisions, but not often. How old is your son? <laughs> uh, Mason is 16, so sometimes I catch him writing emails uh, to uh, schedule IVF. Uh, sometimes uh, he, he pretty much drives the genetic program with our jerseys, for sure. What do you think you've taught him over the years that has put him in a place to be successful doing this on his, as, as he sees it on his own? Oh, that's a great question. I, I think having an open mind teaching him that a lot of times if you look at genetics and herds that have had a great deal of success with genetics, they tend to actually uh, almost try to recreate a bubble. Um, this is what's worked. This is what's been successful. So I just repeat it. And historically, it's just been shown that that doesn't really always work that way. Um, you kind of have to follow some of the trends in the industry, whether it be genetic progress, but also the type of cattle that we're selecting for and kind of taught him that, you know, he has to keep an open mind with the direction that, you know, breeding follows and listening to advice from as many people as he possibly could as, as well as not being afraid to carve his own path. You know, if, if he has a, a goal, he should, he should strive for that goal. And he definitely does. It sounds like it. You work in genetics, both at home, both in a career, and you've done this for years. So what kind of developments have you seen happen in the industry in your lifetime or while you've been involved in this? Yeah, a lot. You know, I mean, we went from an industry in genetics, you know, if, you're, if, you, if you say the whole industry of genetics and not just focusing on, say, show-oriented type which is its own topic, you know, we've seen a change from during the genomic era to having more uh, data at our fingertips where we can make more accurate selections. Understanding that genomics is not an absolute, it, it's more of a tool to actually allow us to identify animals that are, have a higher prepotency for the phenotypic traits that we're trying to select for, whether that be production, whether that be confirmation or health. And um, so genomics has really played a key critical role in that, as well as tools, reproductive tools like embryo transfer and now um, simplicity of IVF being um, able to select um, more effectively um, our elite female population. And, um, you know, most recently, things like sex semen allow us to put tools forward with um, female selection and emphasizing the female side of that genetic equation. And then most recently, probably beef on dairy. Those tools all combined together can really accelerate a herd's genetic progress 
and you know a, a cow family line in the right direction if used appropriately. So if we think about genomics and show cows, typically they're not two things that we're putting together in the same conversation. Why is that? That's a good question. I mean, I, I think it should be in the same equation. Really, the reason isn't necessarily because you should be um, selecting for necessarily like the highest, you know, PTAT number for type. It's knowing the pattern that a sire will transmit. And genomics gives you kind of a, an outline of, of what that pattern might be. It gets validated by daughter evaluations, of course, but then that information feeds back into the next generation's level of genomics. So it's a continual uh, loop where phenotypic data feeds that next genetic prediction for genomics. Additionally, you know, a lot of our show type sires over history have have carried some less than desirable recessives and haplotypes. It's really important as a breeder to identify those and not be um, blind to the fact that those those exist, you know. So if I have a a female that's an HCD carrier, I, I should want to know that so that I can make the best breeding decisions, you know, for the future of that cow family and, and what it is that I'm trying to create. So the combination of trait profile plus the haplotypes and recessives, I think are really important to a, a show oriented or high type breeder if they're used appropriately. What are some of those haplotypes that people are watching for these days? Um, HCD, the haplotype for cholesterol deficiency is probably the, one of the more predominant ones can range on a dairy from anywhere from 3 to 5%. It originated from Mofflin Storm, so Goldwyn and Winbrook are both carriers. So those two bulls specifically are in a lot of pedigrees. And then you look at some of the more modern uh, bulls, you know, we have some haplotypes like HH5, which is a um, reproductive haplotype associated with early embryonic loss. And that originated from Pixton Shottle. And so if you think about how those can be uh, transmitted, you know, it's pretty important to, to keep those in your frame of reference that they're out there. And, you know, we could talk about CBM and, and, and other recessives, but those all combined um, can have a negative impact on, you know, especially when they're homozygous positive. So uh, awareness and and um, identification can be pretty important tools to keep our industry because those things are really important to keep our, our cows' survivability high. So those three bulls you mentioned obviously are all Holstein bulls. Are there things that you're watching in other breeds too outside of the Holstein space? In the Jersey world, um, the haplotype JNS, um, which is a neuropathic haplotype that's uh, splayed uh, limbs, it can be a, a negative definitely in the, in the Jersey breed. And, you know, a popular bull that carries it is chrome. And um, so if we can identify those females as well in the Jersey side, 
that can be a really helpful tool too as well to just you know be cognizant that that that's out there and you don't want to perpetuate it so how do this is going to be a really hard question for you to answer but how do breeders who have these outstanding cows with these recessive genes or these uh, haplotypes who obviously are in the show world because of the sires that are involved how do you balance the responsibility of limiting that gene being passed on, but also understanding that you want to pass on the genes of this really great type cow? Yeah, it's a tough question to answer. You know, it's it's up to the responsibility of that breeder and how much emphasis they really want to place on it. With enough breeders that, that view those haplotypes or recessives in a very responsible way, we will start to eliminate it. I think the key is really just identifying which animals to avoid going homozygous positive where you're going to result in an abortion or a death or any type of uh, abnormality. You know, it's the responsibility of each breeder. And yeah, I wish a few more would take that, you know, to heart, but it's also everyone's choice and, and you have to respect that as well. So then what role does uh, a stud company play in that equation? Oh, that's a complicated uh, question to answer. I mean, you know, in a, in a perfect world, we would eliminate them all. But at the same time, I think uh, you do have animals out there that are um, breed leaders or in the top two to 3% that are carriers for that. And so you have to ask yourself, what's what's my risk and reward, right? Both as an AI unit, you know, whether it be selling semen or, or as a breeder who has the female that's really high and, and wants to perpetuate those genetics. I can see and I see a slower but gradual progression to eliminating some of those haplotypes. And who knows, we may find another recessive or haplotype that has deleterious effects on the population and mutations occur and that's just evolution, right? But, you know, it is, it's a responsibility that we all have, but at the same time, you have to play economics into that decision as well and, and uh, make those tough choices of what it is that you're going to create. So I'm going to go back a little bit because you also talked a little bit about sex semen and the beef on dairy that's happening in the industry right now. What type of role are we seeing those types of breeding programs play in the progression of a breed or of the industry? Quite a bit. I mean, I think we'll be very honest with ourselves that maybe sex semen was overused for a period of time. I mean, no one's going to deny that. It became a, an operational tool, and um, from an asset creation standpoint, you know, if I'm a dairyman, I, I, I want more heifers because on a balance sheet, they represent equity. Over time, that's changed because the cost to raise a heifer from birth to uh, calving in a lot of models is over $2,000 in U.S. dollars. And um, when we start factoring that in, extra heifers are actually a liability. And so um, a lot of dairies have really, especially our large dairies, they understand that, you know, if I milk 3,000 cows, 
I probably only need 120 heifers per month. And so how do I create a breeding strategy that uses sex semen to make the right females and then use beef semen to actually um, create beef cross calves, you know, for the bottom? So I think that evolution came, you know, sex semen got introduced, everybody started using sex semen, and we ended up with a lot of heifers. Then everyone realized on, the, on our large-scale operations that we need to reduce extra heifers. So they uh, came up with sexton beef, but the, the beef cross-calf wasn't really the, the benefit. It was reducing heifers um, was the true benefit. And in the last, I'd say, three years, we've seen the shift in the value of beef cross-calves to where that Holstein bull calf has little to no value. I mean, it still has some value, um, but the the beef cross calf is going to be a, a significant increase above a uh, dairy bull calf for sure, whether it be Holstein or Jersey or any any of those breeds. So those tools have allowed a dairy to become way more efficient. I can make the right number of heifers. I can make genetic progress because I can use sex semen on my best animals. And then I have the opportunity to make beef cross calves, which have a huge value proposition to my bottom line. You know, these dairies now that are making two to 300 beef calves a month, yet still making the heifers they need for replacements, you know, are, are able to see between $150 and $250 per beef cross calf in added revenue. And that's, that's, a, that's a huge helper to the bottom line of a dairy. Yeah, that adds up really fast. You're also involved with in vitro stuff, and, and you're doing that at home, and there's embryo transfer work that obviously happens as well. If we think about how sex semen kind of just like flooded the market, especially on the commercial side or really any dairy, I guess, but do we think that there's a point where that's going to happen on the in vitro side, where that's the next tool that dairies will use to, to unify their herd and, and to make it a more cohesive group? Or is it Will we ever get to that point where we kind of stop breeding cows and we're just IVFing a handful and saying, here's calves from a handful and we're going to keep doing that? Yeah, I mean, the time will tell. I mean, it's, it's really sometimes hard. Like if, if somebody told me 10 years ago that I'd be on a podcast talking about sex and beef and, you know, maximizing genetic progress through using sex semen and beef semen, I'd be confused. Um, so... It's really hard to speculate in our industry what direction we're eventually going to go down. But IVF has a place. Today, I'm not sure if it's going to get to a place where commercially on every dairy, as an example, it gets used as an as a additional tool to, to maximize uh, genetic progress on, on, on every herd. Cost definitely becomes a little bit of that liability. And it's not just the cost of, of making an embryo, it's, it's the cost of uh, days open on recipients. You know, if I'm saving 60, you know, lactation one cows from a double ovsing program on Thursday, and I'm going to put embryos in them on next Thursday, and I only put 40 in versus the 60, those 20 that didn't get either semen or an embryo put in have, have a cost. I think IVF has a place, and those herds who understand the reproductive aspect of putting in embryos 
and managing donors and managing recips are going to have great success with it. I think it has a really good place uh, for that herd that's really got that next level of genetics where they want to push the envelope for further genetic progress. We talked with Jared on our last episode about his recip struggle because he was also doing IVF work and, and doesn't know where to put babies, basically. And as a small herd on your end, Kevin, you had said you have 65 pregnancies most times. How are you finding recips or what are you doing then to allow yourself to do IVF with your elite herd? Yeah, and we've been fortunate. Like with our own internal program of what we're doing, we have a partner herd that we kind of work with on, on putting embryos in. They use a double off-sync program. We put all embryos in milking cows. We don't use any heifers. And um, we've had great success with it, um, both with conception, but most importantly, they've been a great um, tool for us in live calves. Um, So abortion rate, very low. The percent survivability, you know, when they're born has been very good. So we've been very fortunate to to find a a herd that really enjoys putting in embryos, understands how it works, uh, has been through that learning curve and, and, and understands any of the pitfalls associated with putting in embryos and can understand because when we're putting in embryos at the end of the day, everybody loves to talk about oocytes and number of viable embryos and conception rates. And I'm, I'm going to be the, the, the devil's advocate because the, it, it doesn't, it's important. It all is part of it, but at the end of the day, it's about live calves. And um, so we want to try to create a system that maximizes the amount of live calves we make. And, and that's what's the return on investment. What are you doing to maximize that number? I think um, with what we're doing with uh, Vitelli through uh, IVF, that has really allowed us to decrease the cost structure of making a pregnancy. So we've been able to um, have a really good program through what they're doing um, with no stimulation to kind of maximize the um, oocyte and then um, embryo output per donor and have held our conception rates very similar. And when you do that, it actually compared to other models, it's really allowed us to decrease our our cost per pregnancy. And then everything that the recipient herd does from there in regards to best practices with, you know, their repro protocols and overall herd health and vaccination protocols and calving protocols really helps us uh, along the way in, in making sure we get as many live calves as we possibly can. What do you think the next thing is that will come through and impact breeders across the country and around the world? Oh, I think there's a couple things. I mean, we're still in the infancy stages of beef on dairy, and we're moving away from the beef breedings uh, just being a a conduit to make a, a black calf. The beef breedings are starting to get a little bit more focused with the right beef genetics to cross with dairy um, based on data associated with uh, feedlot performance as well as uh, carcass traits 
and um, how these these animals are are finishing out. Um, so there's going to be a huge evolution in that process. Um, we're continuing to learn immense amount of information about what it is, what's the right type of beef genetics to use on dairy, and how to maximize the value for each uh, dairy producer using beef. With that said, you know, beef on dairy is allowing us to um, really push genetic progress on a lot of herds. I know through what we do with ST Genetics, we do a lot of genomic testing and a lot of herds that don't even have registered cattle, they, they just have large dairy operations and they genomic test all their calves. You know, just as an example, this week, I think we had four or five herds have multiple calves over a thousand net merit, and these are non-registered herds. And uh, these herds now are seeing huge amount of genetic progress just by implementing sexed on the top and beef on the bottom. So where is that going to take these herds in the next three to five years? Because if those animals prove out to make more solids per cow per day and have higher um, stability in the herd, that's going to make that herd way more efficient, reduce cull rates, reduce non-completion rates. And, you know, the industry is beginning becoming more efficient. And I think we're still just touching the surface of the genetic progress associated with that um, strategy. The other tool that I think is going to get a lot more emphasis and refinement over the next five to seven years, maybe 10 years, is uh, feed conversion. We can have lots of discussions about residual feed intake or feed saved or uh, like ST Genetics uses EcoFeed. Those traits are going to continue to be refined. I think we're learning not only about actual genetics associated with feed conversion efficiency, but what metabolic and biological factors are being impacted by the cow when we select for that efficiency. So things like rumen health, things like microbial digestion efficiency, biogas, uh, the reduction of carbon, the reduction of water needs, those traits genetically are going to slowly um, get more and more data uh, so that we can actually allow dairies to uh, select genetically for, for tools that are going to make them more efficient in their, their feed conversion. How does one measure those types of things on a scale? <laughs> I was going to ask you how this, is, how this whole feed efficiency thing works in terms of like a, a breeding trait, because I want it to be a number based on something. But like how does, how does that number come to be? Yeah, so what we're calculating, um, whether it be through USDA, CDCB, or, or our internal work at ST, um, we're calculating uh, residual feed intake. And what that really is simply is the amount of feed an animal actually eats versus what we expect them to eat. So we can predict based on an animal's milk production, her body size, her body weight, what we believe that animal is going to intake. You know, if she's a, a mature cow at peak milk, we're going to assume that she's con, uh, consuming 60 to 70 pounds of dry matter. 
And a lot of our systems for calculating feed conversion or residual feed intake allow us to uh, individually, daily, uh, grab the actual dry matter intake. So these cows are eating out of feed nodes. Um, they have a weigh-in, you know, at the, at the beginning of the day. So when feed is delivered, we know exactly how much feed was delivered to that feed node. And then um, throughout the day, as an animal puts their, their head through the headlock, you know, an RFID is read, and we can measure uh, how much feed that animal consumed during that period of time. And so uh, we're able to actually create a variation, a variance between you know, what they actually ate versus what they were expected to eat. Surprisingly, the trait has a lot of um, variation from cow to cow, which is great because that means we can select for it because uh, not all cows eat the same amount of feed, you know, and so it's a little bit independent of body size. We use body size composite to kind of give a little bit more reliability through feed save, but I think we're going to learn over time that it's an independent trait. Big cows can be just as efficient as small cows when we actually measure how much they eat compared to what we expect they'll eat. How does that translate into different farm systems where there's different rations? So obviously you can measure dry matter, but we've had Previously, we've had nutritionists on this program, and they've talked about the crazy things that they feed cows. So how do you take that from a controlled research scenario and put it into practice on dairies across the country? Yeah, great question. And I don't know if we have the definitive answer for that. There's, you know, everything from, you know, traditional dairy rations to robotics to uh, organic to grass-fed we can make a lot of assumptions that those models are going to have some consistency or uh, correlation uh, across those different feeding platforms, but those are assumptions. And, um, you know, whenever you're doing things with genetics or any type of technology that involves progress, you have to start with some assumptions and uh, from there build, you know, as we add more data and are able to uh, create the same type of opportunities to collect data in, in multiple types of environments. It's exciting stuff. I, this will be great to see where it goes. So, Kevin, I'm going to ask one last question because I feel like I really want to know, what do or who do you think or who do you consider to be the most influential bull of all time? I mean, it, it still has to be elevation. I mean, uh, when elevation, um, you pull a lot of our pedigrees of both. It doesn't matter what niche breeding strategy we're talking about, whether it be the red portion of the Holstein breed, whether it be high genomic, uh, whether it be show type, um, you know, elevation is everywhere. Um, so his, you know, we could pick multiple uh, more modern or current bulls, but honestly, it's still traces back to, to elevation or, or chief in regards to their influence in, in the acceleration of genetic progress of, of the Holstein breed. So definitely elevation still today. What did he do for the breed that was so impactful? Like what traits did he provide? Yeah, I think in that era of, uh, of when he was uh, 
a staple. He was one of those bulls that actually was great at being a sire of sons and a sire of females. And generationally, year after year, generation after generation, uh, the genetics that originated from elevation uh, held true and um, stayed impactful in, in the dairy industry in regards to both confirmation, production, and health. Uh, so he was, uh, he was kind of that bull that pulled it all together for that population of animals before we even knew it was cool to do so. Well, I think that's a perfect spot to stop, Kevin. And this just means that we can look for some elevation, what, great, 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 great granddaughters, <laughs> maybe yeah. at yep. Expo this year. But I There'll be plenty of them. There will be. <laughs> I have no doubt about that. But I have to say thank you so much for taking the time and tackling genetics on this podcast with us. And this has been a fantastic time for me. So hopefully listeners feel the same. But yes, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. We want to thank our episode sponsor, Vitelli, one more time. Visit Vitelli.com to accelerate your genetics with hormone-free in vitro fertilization by signing up your donors for an ovum pickup. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show. We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you. 